And I want to talk first about the issue of race and racism. We've talked about this briefly in the class before, but it's kind of a good preview to the issue of critical race theory. And the first argument I would make is, is that the word race is imprecise. First of all, genetically and scientifically, it's imprecise because we have what's called the Human Genome Project. And that has been something that has been done by some very outstanding individuals. So they've been able to map on the human genome every one of those genes. Well, that shows us that the characteristics that we identify in terms of race, that would be the melanin in your skin, your skin color, uh, eye uh, eye corrections, things like that, just the various types of aspects that we identify with race, hair color and all the rest, those tend to be very insignificant genetically. Uh, as we oftentimes use, anybody of any genetic difference around the world could interbreed, so obviously that is the case. One study that looked at this concluded that the DNA of any two people in the world, you think of the most diverse kind of situation, they only differ by two-tenths of one percent, and even that difference, only about six percent of that can be related to, if you will, genetic categories. So the racial differences that have become so significant sometimes in various cultures are pretty trivial when you consider that there are three billion base, uh, base pairs in your DNA, okay? And so it's somewhat insignificant. It's also becoming less significant because of interracial marriage. Uh, think, for example, uh, when we had to fill out the census, um, Tiger Woods, how many boxes could he check, you know, uh, black, Asian, whatever. Think of our vice president, Kamala Harris. How many boxes could you check? Even in our neighborhood, we have quite a number of interracial couples, and those children could check all sorts of boxes. So you can see that even now, what has become looming large because of this whole issue of race is really becoming less significant in terms of genetics. But back to what we're going to be looking at, what about the Bible? And I think you'd have to say that if we're really honest, the Bible only talks about one race, the human race. The superficial differences in skin color, hair color, eye shape, hair, whatever it might be, uh, which we think sometimes as human beings are significant, the Bible says we are all one race. A good verse of that is Acts 17, verse 26. Because here you see that the Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the Athenians at Mars Hill in Athens, says basically we're all of one blood. We all come from Adam and Eve. Now, why did he say that? Well, because there was always this assumption that there was kind of a special creation for this elite group, the Athenians, and a different creation for the barbarians. As a matter of fact, uh, um, if you got your Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. I did not put this verse up there, so I thought it would be good to illustrate even how Paul, when he's writing not only to those, of, uh, we're going to look at Galatians in just a few minutes, but even in Colossians chapter 3 verse 11, notice here he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I tend to not use that verse because it really is talking more about in the body of Christ. But it is striking that he uses the word Scythian. Where are the Scythians? 
Well, the Scythians were these, if you will, they were more barbarians than the barbarians. If you've ever seen this picture of those riding on horseback with archery, they were some of the best archers. By the way, this was really interesting to see archery in the Olympics, but that's another story. But these were, they were, they would ride horses and shoot their arrows, but they're also known as the barbarians of the barbarians. Uh, as they would kill people, they would drink their blood and all sorts of stuff, so I won't talk about because this is before lunch. But they were seen as totally irredeemable. And the implication here is that maybe some of these Scythians had become Christians. Because even the barbarians said, well, we're not like the Scythians. And the implication here is, is that even those people that you could not possibly imagine were part of the body of Christ. They were seen like wild beasts. Even there, Paul says, no, they're all part of one race. So I just wanted to use that as an illustration that here Paul was addressing that, if you will, kind of racial bias in his day when he's talking about that. We're going to come back to Galatians 3.28 in just a minute, but I just thought I'd show you that a biblical definition is we're all part of the human race. And so that's the first starting point. But before we get into this idea of critical race theory, are there racial differences? Yes, there are. I'm going to just give you a couple of examples, but I go into them in more detail in the book on racism. For example, Pew Research has noticed that in terms of the perception of the world, blacks and whites see the world very differently. For example, 7 in 10 of blacks believe that race relations in the United States are generally bad. You could get about 56% of whites saying that. So there's a difference in terms of how they see the situation. More than three-fourths of blacks believe that the country hasn't gone far enough in giving blacks equal rights, whereas whites um, only about a third. And the most disturbing statistic out of the Pew Research, half of blacks were convinced that black people will never have equal rights. Now, I'm sure this tends to be a pretty much white audience. A lot of you go, really? But that's a sad commentary to believe that we will never have a culture that will ultimately provide equality. And I think it illustrates why this idea of, if you will, critical race theory has surfaced in the academic world and now in the popular culture. We look at this more from a Christian point of view. So George Barnum, somebody I have on every two weeks because he's been rolling out some of his surveys, he also finds something very interesting. He found that eight in ten blacks in his survey believe that people of color are often put at a social disadvantage because of their race. Well, a bare majority of evangelicals agree with that. So he's pointed out that there's a difference between the way a typical born-again Christian might look at it and the way African-Americans look at it. He also found a difference in terms of what's called reverse racism or affirmative action. large majority of whites complain about that, um, less than a majority of blacks do. So you can see there are some differences in the way in which that is perceived. But I thought I'd put up one other one, and there are many more in that booklet, and that is, there has always been an argument that there are racial stereotypes even in the workplace. And one of the classic studies found, for example, that people with black-sounding names had to send out 50% more job applications than people with white-sounding names in order to get a return call. And that study has been there for some time, but again, I want to give credit to some of the people that have done some of the follow-up studies. What they found is, is that that looked like it might show a racial bias. As people began to dig into it and do follow-up studies, they say it may not so much show a bias in terms of race as a bias in terms of class. Let me use an example. 
If, say, you're in a law firm, you're an accounting firm, maybe you're uh, an investment company, and you see a resume from Bubba Smith, for example, well, they might say, well, they, he was rejected because that sounds like an African-American name. But there's also people by the name of Bubba Smith that are white, too. But the name Bubba makes you say, well, would Bubba fit in, whether black or white, into this group? And so they've come to conclude that maybe this had more to do with class than it did with race. Not that I'm saying that's a good thing, okay? But I'm just saying that sometimes what seems like racial inequities may be based on other factors. And so just wanted to show, share that because it's a good example of maybe having to think more carefully about statements that are made blatantly. When you go back and do the research, maybe not. Okay. One of the phrases that you probably have heard so often is white privilege. And so I thought I'd dig into that for just a minute because a lot of people say, well, where did this phrase come from, white privilege? Well, it comes from this individual. This is Peggy McIntosh. I've mentioned this once before in the class, but she was a professor, a feminist professor doing study in feminist research at Wellesley. She actually coined the term back in 1998 because the argument she was making originally in some of the literature was that there is male privilege. That is, a man walks into a um, car uh, repair shop. He's going to be treated differently maybe than the women walk into a car repair shop. Can you women shake your head and get that sense that maybe that's the case? And so she was saying that oftentimes men have privilege and they don't even realize that they do. So he'd, she'd been writing about that. Well, the classic paper was white privilege and male privilege, a personal account of coming to see correspondence through work in women's studies. In other words, she took the idea of male privilege and said, maybe there's more than male privilege. There might be white privilege as well. And so she argued just as men don't recognize male privilege, maybe whites don't recognize white privilege. Well, you know, that was written if you want to do the math, a third of a century ago. So I thought for just a minute I would take you through some of those examples that she used and see if maybe we've had at least some progress in the last three decades. Fair? Um, there's 26, so I won't take all of them. Number one, I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the newspaper and see people of my race widely represented. You know, I think it might be fair that back in the 1980s you turn on Channel 8, Actually, if you turn on Channel 8, I think Iola Johnson was there. And, of course, you've had John uh, McKay and a variety of others. But nevertheless, you know, there was maybe a tendency that oftentimes all the faces were white. Is that the case today? I don't know if it was the case then, but it's certainly not the case now. Okay. If I want to, I'm pretty sure of finding a publisher for this piece on white privilege. The implication is that if I'm white or if I'm a male, it's more likely to get printed. I would reverse that now. I'd say in the academic world, especially with such an emphasis on wanting to be inclusive, I would think that a woman, especially a black woman writing on that, would have a better chance of getting it published because of the desire to provide that. But certainly that has changed, I would say. I am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. African Americans tell me, you know, people come up and say, can you kind of understand, help me understand the black culture? Like, I'm supposed to be the representative for everybody that's black, you know? Has anybody ever come up to you and say, you know, maybe, Parker, can you speak for all Asians? Well, maybe you've had that, but I don't think many of you white people here have had it. Can you speak for all the white people? So, okay, that one may be true. I can pretty much be sure that if I ask to talk to a person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race. That may have been true in the past. 
Suzanne's had trouble with her car. She will say that if anything, I'm going to be talking to somebody who has an Indian accent who goes by the name Bob. But anyway, you know, obviously that uh, has changed a little bit as well. If a traffic cop pulls me over or if the IRS audits my tax return, I can be sure it haven't been singled out by my race. Is that not the argument of BLM, Black Lives Matter? I can take a job with an affirmative action employer without having my coworkers wonder if I got it because of my race. You know, maybe some of that's still there. I can be sure that if I need legal or medical help, my race will not work against me. Or I can choose blemish cover or bandages and flesh cover and have them more or less match my skin. Have you been to the uh, Walmarts lately or uh, Walgreens or a variety of others? I think some of these that used to exist show progress. And I've just given you a short list of them. But I, if you find yourself saying you want to understand a little bit more about my privilege, I would have to say that the best piece that I've found is actually a PragerU video by Brandon Tatum. Now, he's a former police officer, L.A. police officer. And first of all, he starts off by saying, you know, do we profile certain individuals? Yes, I'm black. But yes, I will tell you that some of the individuals, if I see them in a store, I'm going to, if they look like a gangbanger, I'm going to pay more attention to them than maybe somebody else. So the reality is, those of us in the police force, yes, we do recognize that there are certain individuals, certain characteristics, certain dress, certain tats that I do pay attention to because of the harsh reality of the statistics. But he opens up with this idea of white privilege. He tells you a little bit about, of course, the story that came out that I just told you. But he says, you know, there is some privilege. For example, there's born in America privilege. That's pretty significant privilege if you think about that. I remember when there was a big uh, protest against the one percenters. Remember the one percent in Wall Street? I used to say to some of the people that were talking about that, I said, well, you're one percenter. No, I'm not. Compared to the world, you're 1%. We found out that if you have just the median income in America, you're in the top 1% around the world. And if that was true a couple of years ago, after this pandemic and lockdown, it's really true as well. So, born in America privilege? How about college degree privilege? Uh, I just got a commentary coming out this week that about two-thirds of the various uh, job openings say bachelor uh, you know, bachelor degree required. You know, again, pretty interesting. Um, two-parent privilege. I mean, you start thinking of all, you know, living in North Dallas privilege. Just think of the privilege. So, in some respects, he doesn't disagree with the idea of privilege. He simply helps us understand that, yes, there are different aspects, but let's put all that in a broader context. Fascinating video and a very articulate individual, and you might want to go to PragerU and watch it a little bit later. But I want to get to our next piece, because some of you might say, okay, what about this idea of critical race theory? Um, Miki spends a fair amount of time talking about um, how this is a challenge to the gospel and takes you through church history for about a half an hour and talks about, uh, you know, the, uh, the persecution of John Hess and a number of others. And I think some people thinking, can we get to the punchline? And um, that is certainly the case, because ultimately then we need to say, where did this idea come from? Well, it turns out that before we get to critical race theory, we need to talk about what's called critical theory. Now, if some of this is a little bit academic, in just a minute I'm going to point out that even a very well-educated liberal who's been criticizing this says, this stuff is hard to follow. 
So if he's saying it's hard to follow, some of you are going to go, okay, maybe there's a little too much here. But critical theory was originally developed in the University of Frankfurt in Germany, came to be known as the Frankfurt School. Well, the individuals that developed that, who had kind of a Marxist background, they fled from Germany to the United States because they were being hounded by the Nazis. And so they landed at what at that time was Columbia University's teacher school or college, now just Columbia University. And so they began to propose at some time that any social injustice, any disparity, any uh, inequities is due either to class, to race, to gender, or even sexual orientation. Now, in classical Marxism, it's always been class. In other words, Karl Marx and Engels and others argued that you had the workers, the proletariat, and then you had the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, and eventually the workers would rise up and overthrow the capitalists. Well, it didn't really ever happen. And so there came to be this belief outside of what would be classical Marxism, what's now called cultural Marxism, that maybe some of these other victims are the ones that are going to rise up and overthrow that. And so this idea of critical race theory began to be adopted by a couple of individuals, but a key name would be Derek Bell. Uh, he taught critical race theory at Harvard Law School and then came to become the dean of the University of Oregon Law School. So sometimes the pushback to people upset about critical race theory is, well, this is just taught in the law schools, which is true, but it's made its way from the law schools into the colleges per se, into the high schools and the middle schools and the grade schools. So it is true, but it's a lot more than that. And critical race theory says that any kind of inequality in power um, could be based on class or race or those, but ultimately we're going to focus on race. And so you need to be woke. You need to be awakened to the fact that all of these iniquities are due to racism, systemic racism in our society. It's a form of what I call cultural Marxism, and that was developed in large part by a man by the name of Antonio Gramsci. We tend to talk about him every once in a while on point of view because today cultural Marxism is marching its way through the institutions. And today cultural Marxism you can find in most universities. You're starting to find it as well in the popular culture. You're certainly finding it in a number of the even Fortune 500 companies. You're finding it obviously in the media and in social media. And sometimes we're even finding it in the military. And so... Those are sort of the ideas. Okay, so what are the assumptions? You can read through this, and they never tell you what the assumptions are, but I think there's at least four that I've come up with. First of all, the belief that there is no absolute truth. In other words, you have your view of truth, I have a different view of truth, you have a different view of truth. So there's sort of a white truth, there's a black truth, but truth really doesn't even exist. This is just your attempt to try to manifest your privilege in the culture. So it doesn't really believe that there is any absolute truth. Number two, that the economy is a zero-sum game. Your success is based on my failure. You know, you watch the Olympics. There's a winner, there's a losers. But lots of times in the economy, a rising tide floats all boats, right? Because I'm successful doesn't mean that I'm doing it at your, you know, your uh, failure or something of that nature. Number three, individuals are either 
part of an oppressive class or a victim's class. And then ultimately, America is systemically racist and thus must be dismantled. So where do we get from that? Well, first of all, one of the things that I talk about in the book a little bit, and if you want to get a copy, it is available, is that there are a lot of euphemisms. For example, we hear the president talk a great deal about equity. Well, what's equity? You think, well, that's equality. No, when we talk about equality, we say equality of what? Opportunity. We want to give everybody an equal opportunity. But equity is equal outcome. And there is a disparity, so those of you that have a benefit have to give to those who do not. Reparations, all sorts of things fit into that category of equity. Social justice, diversity, inclusion. I want to put out one other one, culturally responsive teaching. There's a piece of legislation right now that is being endorsed even by our own senator here in the state of Texas that is wanting to implement culturally responsive teaching. Why would I be against that? That sounds pretty good. Nope. Again, if you go back and look at the teaching, culturally responsive education and teaching is what is actually being protested right now in, uh, for example, Loudoun County in Virginia, um, in St. Louis, Missouri right now, big controversy right there, uh, some of it in Indianapolis, a couple of places. Interestingly enough, even being protested right now in San Francisco, we talked about that on Friday, and that is the teaching of the critical race theory, which is called culturally responsive teaching. So some of these buzzwords are really important, and as I pointed out just a minute ago, uh, we in a minute we'll talk about one of these kind of liberals who wouldn't agree with us on many issues, saying, you know, as I read through this, I see all this jargon, and it's hard for me, and he's a really bright individual, to understand, and I think it's intended to actually confuse us. But again, critical race theory is based upon this. Either you're in power or you're out of power. If you're in power, you're automatically discredited, you know, if you're one of those with white privilege. If you're underprivileged, you're immune from criticism. And so one of the arguments people are making is this is a philosophy, a worldview, a perspective that is unfalsifiable. In other words, if you are underprivileged, you can make demands. You don't even have to make arguments. And if somebody actually tries to give you a counter-argument, you know, it could be that there is a, uh, an equity here based upon the fact that, for example, uh, these individuals grew up without two-parent homes. They were dealing with uh, some other structural issues, did not, weren't serious about their education. No, that just illustrates that you're trying to perpetuate systemic racism. And so as a result, any kind of rational argument is dismissed, so it becomes sort of unfalsifiable. Well, not only is it sort of indefensible, it also ends up being impractical. Uh, James Lindsay has written about this. Matter of fact, there's a James Lindsay of uh, Prager U I just found out about. But he gives you this example. He's got lots of examples, but this is a simple one. Imagine you have a small shop. Maybe it's a tailor shop. And it's one where you have to deal with each customer individually. Two people walk in, one black, one white. Which customer do you help first? Well, if you help the black person first, well, that illustrates you're racist because you're afraid that leaving a black person there while you're helping the white person, they're going to steal something. And so there, uh, you actually have already shown that you're racist when you actually serve the black person over the white person. But if you serve the white person, well, that just shows that you believe they're first-class citizens and the others are not worthy of your consideration. 
James Lindsay has lots of examples, but I felt that one was a simple one because it gives you kind of this frustration that you'd have of, okay, if indeed we do have racist attitudes, and we have some, because I document that in the booklet, some things that we need to deal with as believers, but this doesn't give me any help because it's kind of the classic heads I win, tails you lose. Either way, whatever choice you make is not a good choice. And that's, I think, what he was trying to communicate. Let me then now come to the liberal critique. Andrew Sullivan, uh, that's his picture in the corner there. This is a picture of Ibram X. Kendi. Um, Henry Rogers is his real name. But anyway, Ibram X. Kendi is kind of known for anti-racism. But Andrew Sullivan, he's got a picture there in the corner there with his dog. But Andrew Sullivan is a very prominent homosexual. If you read any of my books on homosexuality, I quote him because he has been one that has argued for same-sex marriage. He's argued against traditional values. He's argued for prosecuting individuals that don't bake a cake, take a photograph, uh, you know, gay weddings and all the rest. So he's not exactly a person that would agree with us at Prestonwood. But nevertheless, he's writing to his fellow liberals saying, you know, this whole idea of critical race theory, this isn't maybe something we should think about endorsing. Because Andrew Sullivan, again, a prominent liberal, says that even trying to accurately define critical race theory is difficult, he says, because of the sheer volume of jargon words. If right now you're saying, I'm a little bit confused, this guy who's as bright as anybody is saying, I'm a little confused as well. And he says, I wonder if some of that is just trying to sow confusion. But as you read through his piece, and I encourage you to do so, it's on Substack. I thought it was really well written. And I find myself time and time again quoting from liberals who are honest with the facts. Whether it's uh, Alan Dershowitz or Jonathan Turley or Jonathan Haidt or uh, Jordan Peterson or, in this case, Andrew Sullivan. Even though I would disagree with them theologically and maybe even sometimes politically, I appreciate their honesty. And he, all the way through the commentaries, saying, okay, I'm, I'm checking my, my thoughts. Am I portraying the theory accurately? I want to make sure I'm not exaggerating its attack on modern uh, views and liberal modernity. And he says, really, ultimately, he's concluding that the proponents of critical race theory admit that they question the very foundations of liberal society. And so one of his examples is to go back to a textbook. This textbook's about six years old. It's called Understanding Critical Race Theory. Now, it's kind of more of a textbook. So it's not some of the radical tracks that are coming out here now. But he gives you a very good quote, and other people quote the same section in the book, Understanding Critical Race Theory, in which the book explains that critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order. Equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and even the neutral principles of constitutional law. So he's telling his fellow liberals, you know, we better really be serious about whether or not we really want to endorse this idea of critical race theory, because it really is an attack on what we consider today kind of the foundations of a Western democracy, which I thought was interesting. He goes on to even say that critical race theory denies the claim to truth, since the argument is, and this is again a quote from the book, claims to truth are merely claims to power. That gets us back to the idea there's no absolute truth. So, you know, Andrew Sullivan doesn't believe that there are biblical principles that are moral absolutes in the Bible. He probably doesn't necessarily believe that every moral principle you and I would agree with is absolute. But he does believe there is truth. And he's saying, ultimately, what critical race theory is, is kind of postmodernism. There is no truth. 
And it's just the assertion of power. And so as I say here, secular liberals like Andrew Sullivan and many other people, Jordan Peterson in the news and a lot of others who have criticized this and Christians may disagree about a lot of things. But at least we can agree that truth exists and it can be objectively discerned and we can have a debate and discussion. And that's the difference, as I've said in this class before, between liberals and the left. Your classical liberal will say, look, I may disagree with your right to uh, your view, but I will at least affirm your right to express that. Um, I believe that there are certain veritable truths that we can discuss and debate to establish an honorable society. Is that the view of the left? Uh, a lot of times people say, how often do you guys get in the classroom today? Not very often, because our views are not allowed. They are off the reservation. And so, again, even the liberals are starting to say, you know, I used to think the conservatives were my enemy. I'm starting to think the left is my enemy. And Andrew Sullivan, perfect illustration of that. Okay, just before we end, does the Bible have anything to say about it? Well, critical race theory, I've not found in my Bible. Okay, no, I haven't. But can we look at those principles? First of all, the Bible teaches that what? Truth exists and can be discerned. We see this in the Proverbs. We see it in John 8. We see 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is what? God breathed, inspired by God. is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. So we recognize that this is truth. Now, some of the criticism. Is it possible that some people read into the Bible their racial bias? I think that's a reasonable assessment. Uh, do other people read into the Bible some of their biases? True. So sometimes that is the case, which is why we need the entire body of Christ. You know, an African may look at the Bible a little different than a European. Uh, somebody that is growing up in China may look at the Bible very different than somebody who grows up in Uganda. Okay, somebody that's African-American might look at the Bible a little different than white. That's why we need each other. But, you know, if nothing else, what Jesus said is the greatest impediment to proper biblical interpretation is what? Our sin. Because we live in a world of darkness and we don't see the light. So I would say that that's the first issue, which we would disagree with, just on a foundational level. But also, proponents of critical race theory reject the idea that you can make a rational discussion, you can make a rational argument, uh, that uh, they just make dogmatic statements about race and society, yet the Bible says we can use our minds, right? Um, I give you 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. You know, the fact is that Paul says he's destroying speculations and lofty thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God. He's going to destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God because we're to do what? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So certainly we can recognize there is truth. Second of all, we can say that God will allow us to use our minds to evaluate these various, what Miki calls, threats to the gospel. And uh, she goes into all the other ways in which this is threatening the gospel. But let me go on. Because if nothing else, critical race theory creates a division between races. I think that's pretty clear. And um, we see Paul, when he is writing to the church in Ephesus, what does he say? Christ has pulled down the division between Jews and Gentiles. If you go out on the internet right now, type in Tony Evans, critical race theory. You, if you look on that, or if you go to YouTube, you will see the two lectures that Tony Evans has given at Oak Cliff Bible Church. They're Wednesday night lectures. Give yourself two hours. 
because there's a lot there, and he has done a masterful job, as Tony does so often. And his verses that he uses is Ephesians 2, uh, verses 14 and 15. So he uses these passages for his discussion of and his critique of critical race theory. So if you'd like to see some more on that, like I said, give yourself a while, because it goes on. I mean, Tony really gets into the deep. I mean, we're talking about not surface. We're, you know, put on your scuba mask because you're going to go deep for a while and he's going to take you in there. But you, if you'd like to know that, he uses that passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Josh McDowell has written a very good white paper on the subject. He uses that passage there as well. But I think everybody, I've never found an exception, when they critique critical race theory, they all go to Galatians 3.28. Now, I gave you Colossians 3.11 if you're taking some notes, but Galatians 3.28 is, again, a very important passage. Neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, because we're what? We're all one in Christ Jesus. So all these divisions that are being created in the society should not be. You know, we have some kind of ethnic and geographical diversity in this class, and I'm thrilled. And the more we can have, the better, because it illustrates to me that ultimately, someday, we're going to stand before Jesus, and it's going to be what? Every nation, every tribe, right? And so that should be our goal. One other issue before I turn it back over to Parker. There is a tremendous amount of guilt that is put on individuals because proponents of critical race theory propose a guilt on anyone who is identified as an oppressor, just sometimes because of their racial background. And again, it's not only impractical, indefensible, it's almost bullying what you have documented. And I do document a couple of cases of where this has happened in the schools, sometimes in the elementary schools. And to tell a young child that they're an oppressor, I just think that's unfair. I mean, I just don't think that's help, helpful to trying to bring about healing in our culture. Because ultimately, if you think about this, critical race theory is based on the idea that if you're a member of the oppressor race, you never really are totally forgiven because you will always be part of that race. You can't change an immutable characteristic, your skin color, right? Or your characteristics. Is that what the Bible teaches? Of course not. By contrast, the Bible teaches that we are guilty because of what? Because we are sinful. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, not because of our racial status. And ultimately, even if we're trying to earn, if you will, secular salvation with critical race theory, I think Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say that we are saved by what? Grace, not by works. And ultimately, we are redeemed through Christ Jesus. So that's the good news that we need to be spreading in the culture right now to bring about a healing. And again, Tony Evans does an even better job than I do. And quite frankly, I think when you're talking about people like Nikki or Tony Evans, you're talking about African-Americans who probably can say a lot more than I could. But if nothing else, wanted to give you at least a little bit of an overview. And if you find yourself saying, well, I'd like to know a little bit more, you might want to go out on the Internet. But if nothing else, I'm pretty sure that in about a week or two, we're going to hear a message similar from Pastor Jack Graham. And I just wanted to give you a chance to know how to begin to think about some of those issues. And I've got multiple copies of the booklet on racism and on critical race theory. And let's turn it back over to Parker.